This episode of Security Management Highlights is sponsored by Alert Enterprise. Visit them at alertenterprise.com. Use those to build a culture of safety and not a culture of surveillance. And I think if you change that attitude and mindset from within, that it's a culture of safety and not of surveillance, I think that has an outward image that people will respond. Now, the reason it's a good thing from a security perspective is because if we could distribute the energy generation um, and, and have it closer to where it's used, we need fewer and fewer of these big transmission lines. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another exciting episode of Security Management Highlights. I'm your host, the security guy, Chuck Harold. Mohammed Shahzad is the managing director of Atriad, a consultancy specializing in developing physical security programs for higher education. Mohammed also holds a Bachelor of Engineering degree in electrical and electronics from the Stevens Institute of Technology. Mr. Mohammed, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you for having me. Today's topic, understanding how your security technology portfolio in higher education uh, can be used to benefit multiple strategic areas. Now, many people don't know this. I'm going to let out a little secret. I was a police officer for about 14 years. My last assignment before I did two municipalities, my last assignment at the University of California, Los Angeles. I got to tell you, this is a hot topic. <laughs> I'm so glad we're talking about it because yep. security in a university is not the same as security anywhere else. Tell us why that's so. Uh, no, that's absolutely correct. Because I think the biggest thing that is a differentiator is it's the large scale of the entire portfolio, the systems, the devices, the platforms, having sort of this uh, environment that has grown organically over decades, not just even you know years. And it's a very complex program to manage, and it's a very complex technical portfolio to manage, uh, which has new technologies, layers of old technologies on top of it. Some are integrated, some are siloed. Uh, you have institutional knowledge of people that have been doing it for decades. How does that get transferred? Uh, so that's why you're absolutely right that it is not the same. It's an expensive portfolio. It's a complex and complicated portfolio that relies on many, many people within security and outside of security to manage and to maintain. Do you find in your experience that security lives within the local police departments on campus or safety departments on campus, or does somebody else above that run it? Uh, it's typically what our experience has been that it's a little bit too pronged. So there is a security police uh, and law enforcement component that is very active. Uh, but the administration of the portfolio, <clears throat> sort of the technical uh, oversight, in our experience, has fallen on security-specific departments. And some universities even have security guards that are not law enforcement. And so they play a major role in monitoring and reporting. And you know, law enforcement is brought on, police departments are brought on on top of that. So it's actually almost like a three-layered system that, that we have seen. Let's talk about... Uh, how we look at these portfolios, how we define them. And then before the show, we talked briefly about, you know, uh, once you get this thing set and you understand what it is, you just got promoted and the next guy comes in. And how do we sustain that? Let's talk about that. Yeah, and I think that's one of the most important things, situational awareness of your portfolio. Where, what do you have? Where do you have it? Um, managing its, its life cycle is one of the things that we emphasize is crucial because it really gives you 
it gives you an idea and awareness of everything from your peripheral devices, be it cameras and readers, all the way to your platforms, your licenses. You have so many systems touching each other now, integrated, other applications coming in, your SLAs, your support agreements, your maintenance cycles. How do you keep track of all of that? So right now, all that is manual. And if you're able to develop a program where you can create an organized mechanism using a lifecycle management platform or an inventory management platform, and now you know exactly what my life cycle for camera is, five to seven years. My maintenance refresh cycle, cleaning cycle of outdoor cameras is every year. My funding cycle is three years because if I'm going to replace 500 cameras, I got to start asking for that money two years before that. You, you can then feed all of that into that living and breathing lifecycle management platform. And I think that situational awareness helps so much get departments prepared early on to know, okay, this is where we're at. This is at any given time, the health of our system. And now technologies have gotten sophisticated where you know a video management system can tell you the health of the cameras. But I'm talking about taking it a step further where now you add your funding streams to it. You add your operational schemes to it. If you were to buy a new, new, new technology, what are the training protocols? Uh, the guy that got promoted, how often did he or she train other people? And what is the transfer of knowledge? This is all part of a program's lifecycle. So I think we tend to think of lifecycle as, well, my camera or my reader is going to uh, break and I got to replace it. But I think the portfolio's lifecycle is the lens that, that we really want to promote. People start looking at it that way, that how do I maintain and sustain my, my, my entire security portfolio? You know, sustainability, that's a huge word in security. And in a university, it's even bigger. There are a lot of legacy systems in place, not changed for all kinds of reasons other than a good security reason. Maybe that one department doesn't have a budget to upgrade something that they want. And over here in the you know IT division at the university, they have the latest and greatest stuff. Talk to me about integration. How do we wire this stuff all together? I think this is probably the greatest challenge on a campus like that because each mm -hmm. department, in a way, is a fiefdom unto themselves and has a lot of say in what they do in a particular building or department? That, that's an excellent question. And we see that all the time. That's one of the biggest challenges. Uh, you know, an access control system, there would be 10 different instances of it because one department put it, put it once, the other department put it once, and now you got 10 different access control systems by the same vendor <laughs> sometimes, or three or four different vendors of access control platforms. Um, I think there's there's a couple of things to it. First, the risk of it has to be looked at. Uh, does it bring benefit and value? Um, there, there's different integrations. So within, within security platforms and outside of security platforms, we have walked into environments where third-party integration, it was felt that it was really needed because before, without it, you couldn't really function. And when we really looked at the risk and operation and how the departments were functioning, you actually didn't need a third-party integration at that level. You just needed smaller level integrations, which are much more achievable, much more cost-effective. So I think looking at risk, looking at what resources you have available, and that's the second piece that becomes very prevalent. There's so many instances we, we observe where uh, whether it's IT, HR, security, or some other group is working on a project, we would get hired and we start working on a project and about a month into it, we find out that somebody else has already been working on a similar project <laughs> at the other end of the camp. <laughs> right? And that cross-functional knowledge, collaboration with other groups and departments um, is a very important aspect and, and methodology to overcome that. 
Uh, so having a steering committee, security being part of a steering committee. And I think that's sort of that having a seat at the C-suite, being able to be engaged with the right stakeholders. So if security and the organization's culture is such that the that there are committees that can discuss cross-functional projects, most importantly, though, cross-functional risks. If I'm bringing in an onboarding system, what is the downstream risk to physical IDs? What is the downstream risk to all the different elements that are in place? If I'm implementing single sign-on, does that apply to access, video, mass notification? What is the user experience behind it for students, for faculty, for security practitioners? And you don't have that conversation in a proactive manner. It's almost in a reactive manner. So if organizations are able to get on to that cross-functional knowledge sharing, and it doesn't have to be every month, once a quarter, uh, twice a year even, and be on the lookout of what the different initiatives are going on, there is so much that can be leveraged. There's so many integrations that can happen natively when one project is happening. You can capitalize on each other's cost centers. You can capitalize on, on leveraging what exists instead of having to buy siloed systems, siloed platforms. Uh, and when it comes to integrations, I think it is very specific to risk. You want to understand what is it you're going to get out of. Uh, because in a university environment, especially integrations, you know, right now, uh, they're all license-based. So you're not going to integrate all 4,000 cameras. You're not going to integrate all 2,000 readers. So you really got to focus on your risk. And I think it's almost a localized approach where you start looking at, okay, what do I get out of this particular integration, which may work very effectively on this building, but it may not work at all at this, at this intersection. And that's the kind of uh, you know strategic surgical approach you got to take to it. Mohammed, tell me how we start a conversation with the admin on this. And in a university, there are so many layers. You got the chancellor and all the sub-chancellors and co-chancellors and all these people. It is almost impossible. It's a lot different than getting into the uh, the boardroom or the C-suite because there's so many players with so many agendas, right? Walk us through this. Uh, tell us how we can make this a smoother process. Uh, I think engagement and informed uh, decision-making process. That's that's the absolute key. Uh, where you know security programs can get into trouble and hard waters is if there is not that um, organized thought process behind it as to what is it that we're buying? Uh, have we done the right due diligence? Um, the business drivers that we're presenting are informed and most importantly, they're aligned. That is all almost exclusively the biggest gap sometimes. Security wants to do something for some reason, for one reason, leadership has a different priority. That doesn't mean that they're not worried about security. It's just a misalignment. So one of the things that we recommend from the very beginning in a development of a security program is to get the right representatives or liaisons from some of those key stakeholders. You don't have to engage them at every step of the process, but you start with them at least having an understanding of what leadership's goals are, what the different committees are that are gonna make those decisions and what's important to them. One may be strictly looking at finance, one may be strictly looking at risk, one may strictly be looking at what's available already that we can do. Um, one may be focused on uh, headcount. Understand all those priorities upfront. So when you build a security program and when you document that security program, all those aspects that are addressed. Um, we have um, engaged with security groups who have then gone chain after chain. You, you, you used a very good point of different iterations. So we have gone from 
one steering committee to the next steering committee to the next steering committee up to the president uh, or the trustees of that university. And each step was what is important to them. Uh, what do they view security as? What are the function security as? In each instance, when we did that due diligence and put their concerns and aligned the security program with them, it had successful adoption 100% of the time. And when those elements were not in, it met with resistance because fundamentally it comes down to this a cost overhead, right? How do you overcome that perception? Uh, how can you bring value? How can you reduce and leverage existing resources? How can you align the culture? If the culture is openness, accessibility, and you're putting barriers, your, your program is not going to succeed. But then if you understand that that's the, the cultural aspect, and now you can bring in an architect, you can bring in principles that can blend in some of the other unique innovative ideas, all of a sudden that barrier comes down between, oh, it's just security they want to prevent. No, we're partners in it, approaching the common risk to the university, which is an operational risk always. And I think that's the starting point. Engage and become aware of what the priorities, what the leadership's goals are. And security is always, every time we, we engage with these, with these groups, nobody ever said they don't care about security. They cared about security, but they also had their own uh, prioritized alignment that they wanted to make sure the security was incorporated. And it goes both ways. Sometimes the education security is illuminating to them. Okay, we didn't think of that. So yes, while we're focused on openness, this aspect of security is critical. And we've actually put bollards up <laughs> where you know they had started with saying absolutely no barriers and we convinced them to put bollards up or we convinced them to put certain barriers up because no, the risk is the same. We share the same risk. Here are the different tools and options available and costs available. So once again, that informed decision-making process is what allowed them to say, okay, I get it. I was opposed to it, but I understand the risks and this is my best option and this is how it can be mitigated. So 25 years ago when I wore a uniform and drove around campus at UCLA, I was not exactly received well. It's not part of a collegiate culture to have police, right? Now right. it's 2021. My gosh, it was bad 25 years ago. It's impossible now. <laughs> so has has attitudes towards security, and when I say police, I also mean security, right? Have those attitudes yep. changed, and has it made it more difficult for someone like yourself to do this job and to achieve some sort of uh, balanced security on a campus? Uh, I think the attitudes, yeah, it, it, they have changed. It depends, university to university, um, risk to risk, kind of what kind of environment there is. And I think that's why that engagement is, is key. But other thing is also is that as a security group, and this goes for both the, the police side of it and the administrative side of it, if they start making security part of the culture from a lens of safety, right, um, and in that respect, create an awareness plan, create a security and safety awareness plan. We had a client, this was a non-university client, but they did something very simple. They took their security program and they put it into small bite-sized chunks of what a best practice was, uh, elements of safety, if you're going to the parking lot, if you were walking into a new building, and they put it all over their TV monitors around their campus, their corporate campus. So as you're walking, you will see signs of blood drives and promotional material for the organization. And then suddenly you will see for about five seconds, a security message, a positive enforcement of safety, what you should do, what the phone number is, who to call. Uh, they also started doing, and at university, I understand this may be difficult, but they started doing like little barbecues, uh, <laughs> events, 
couple of couple of times a year sponsored by security and they will have security officers dress you know casual greeting little little show a little game and over time what started to happen was it took them about two three years as we were working with them they started getting invited to steering committee meetings they started getting invited to the c-suite meetings and security started to become not this obtrusive you know hindrance but Oh yeah, these are the guys that you know that help us with that. They they, they escort me to the parking lot. They answer their question for me, and I think those types of simple measures that don't require a lot of effort, but and they're static things that you can actually incorporate into your digital and your social media awareness. And once again, I want to end by saying, use those to build a culture of safety and not a culture of surveillance. And I think if you change that attitude and mindset from within that it's a culture of safety and not of surveillance. I think that has an outward image that people will respond to. Mr. Mohammed Sajad, atriot.com. Good stuff, my friend. We've been speaking about understanding your security technology portfolio and higher education and security. I, I gotta say, I think you hit it with that last tone there. It is about making security part of the culture. And that's really the only way you will be ultimately successful in the end. Thank you so much for coming on Security Management Highlights, my friend. Thank you, Chuck. Great. Great to have you. This episode of Security Management Highlights is sponsored by Alert Enterprise. Visit them at alertenterprise.com. Here to talk about cyber physical security risks is Mr. Mark Weatherford. Mark is the Chief Information Security Officer at Alert Enterprise and guides the strategy of data management and protection, advising cyber physical security policies and procedures within the company. Mark is also a former member of the Homeland Security Advisory Council and has held numerous high-level cyber-centric positions, including Vice President and Chief Security Officer at the North American Electric Reliability Corporation. Mr. Mark Weatherford, welcome back to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Hello, Chuck, and it's good to be back. You know, today's topic, uh, beyond IT security, cyber-physical convergence, uh, it's the way forward for critical infrastructure. Everything is just magnified nowadays with all our threats. I mean, ransomware is huge. You know, in a recent article, you stated we are all, quote, well past cyber wake-up calls. Way past, no doubt. As cyber attacks continue to expand, do you think most organizations and political leaders really understand today's fast-evolving cyber threat landscape? I'm not sure they do. Well, I certainly think they're becoming aware of the cyber threat landscape, probably in a very personal way. Um, you know, expectations for executive accountability are increasing. So organizational leaders find themselves in a situation basically where, you know, they must become educated or face the consequences of their ignorance. So tell me what resources are available for them to keep up to date. Sure. And, you know, I've, I've thought a lot about this. I, I don't think, I think the problem is actually in not in what resources are available to them, but how to select from the vast menu of, of resources. Um, and I think there's two that, that I have been recommending. The, um, the National Association of Corporate Directors, they have a wonderful leadership ed education program, and they have a um, director's handbook on cyber risk oversight that I think is one of the most comprehensive and easily read and easy to understand resources that I've seen. 
Um, and they put this out for the last several years, but I think the most recent one is 2020, but it's very good, has um, not only educational materials, but it also provides like these, these lists of questions that a, that a security leader may ask their CISO or their, or their CIO or their CSO. Um, and, and anyway, it kind of puts it all together in a package that, that really makes it easy for, uh, for leaders of organizations to understand. And the second one is the, um, the National Cybersecurity Center has a program called Cybersecurity for State Leaders, where they're teaching state legislators and their staffs, as well as state government executives about the fundamentals of cybersecurity and really how to put things in context as they consider new laws and the management of cybersecurity at the state level. So I think from both the public sector perspective and the private sector perspective, the, uh, the National Association of Corporate Directors um, Handbook on CyberWorks Oversight and the National Cybersecurity Center's Cybersecurity for State Leaders program are really good resources. Speaking of the public sector, the White House has released several executive orders and action plans on improving U.S. cybersecurity. How will this help protect our critical infrastructure and what more do you think needs to be done? Well, the recent executive order is a great initiative. In reality, it's mostly focused on the federal government and probably can do very little for the private sector except create new levels of regulation and oversight. And that's probably not necessarily a bad thing. In light of you know, the many recent cybersecurity incidents we've had over the past six months or so, I think it's appropriate to think about and ask, would the EO really have realistically done anything to prevent them? And I think the probably answer is no. Um, so not a bad thing but um, to raise the awareness, but we need to, to keep the EO in, in perspective. I think regulation is needed, however, and I've been saying for years that while I'm not a fan of regulation, when the safety and security of American citizens is at stake, and certainly it is with, with much of the critical infrastructure, we simply cannot depend on the benevolence and goodwill of private sector businesses to devote all the necessary resources for cybersecurity just because it's, it's the right thing to do. So maybe more regulation is called for in this case. Mark, one of my big concerns is, is OT technology, operational technology. With recent security events, there's a growing awareness and concern about the current state of our operational technology and their security for critical infrastructure. What's the current gap? And, and why do you feel that security convergence is the only way to move forward on this? Yeah, this is a great question. You know, honestly, I can't believe we're having the same conversation in 2021 that we're having over a decade ago. Um, IT and OT are very different breeds of technology, and yet we continue to lump them together and treat them like they're the same. Convergence simply means that we bring the IT, OT, and even physical security teams and technologies together to provide a more comprehensive and aggregated view of cybersecurity. It makes operational sense, it makes organizational sense, and it makes technology sense. And finally, it even makes business sense. You know, companies need to get over the cultural hurdles and make security convergence a key piece of their overall organizational strategy. The alternative, unfortunately, is to continue wasting scarce security resources while suffering from a lack of a, this common operating picture of security that convergence gives us. As we see more blended cyber-physical threats, 
how can CISO and CSO leaders work better together to create a more unified security mission? This is this is critical. There's always been this separation of the two, and we got to get them speaking to each other on a better level. Oh, you're preaching to the Amen choir. Well, once again, I believe security convergence is the answer, and blended cyber physical threats require blended security organizations. Um, I continue to believe that security in most organizations should fall under one leader with perhaps different security disciplines. This way, companies can achieve the economies of scale and the efficiencies of this aggregated threat intelligence information. And the message we have at Alert Enterprise is that the security leader responding to a security incident needs to make sure that they're sending right the right response person. That is, should that person have a wrench, a laptop, or a gun? And a converged security program puts the right tools in the hands of the security leader to make that decision. Mark Weatherford, Chief Information Security Officer at Alert Enterprise, LearnEnterprise.com. Mr. Mark, thanks for coming on the show, my friend. Thank you, Chuck. And it's always my pleasure to be here and uh, help raise the bar on security. Ross Johnson is the founder and principal of Bridgehead Security Consulting, Inc., a firm specializing in the protection of critical infrastructure. He is also an executive committee member of the Critical Infrastructure Protection Committee for the North American Electric Reliability Corporation. Ross is also the former chair and current council vice president for the ASIS International Petrochemical, Chemical, and Extractive Industry Security Council. Mr. Ross Johnson, welcome to Security Management Highlights, my friend. Today we're talking about protecting the bulk power system in North America and what security practitioners might need to know to mitigate potential threats. Now, Mr. Ross, this is the one thing in security that has always, always made me nervous, always kept me up at night. It unsettles me. But we're here today, in part, to talk about some good news as far as the grid goes. Now, tell me what that is. I think the good news is is that while the grid is under pretty relentless assault, both physically and, and especially through cyberspace, there are an awful lot of uh, people involved uh, on a day-to-day basis in protecting it. And that the, the record of the attackers is a, is a poor one, considering the amount of work and effort that they're putting into it. And that, that in North America, we have an abundant supply of safe, clean, reliable electrical power. And that it's going to stay like that for the foreseeable future. That is good news. I'm glad to hear it. And I've always said to myself, you know, if people could take our grid down, why don't they? Right? Because if, if we were out, if the whole nation was out for a day, that's a disaster. If it's out for a month, we're done. I mean, that's, that's yeah. it. Right, so it's very precarious. You're you're right. It's, those are called outages, and we tend to get upset. Everybody tends to get upset at the idea of an outage, but then, and then, but then they happen sometimes anyway. And power is sort of off locally for one or two hours, or, or three or four, or six six hours, or whatever. Uh, sometimes longer than that, like we saw in Texas uh, earlier this year. And then that is a, a, a true disaster. Um, emergency management folk tend to ask people or expect people to be self-reliant for the first 72 hours. So if you can, if, if you can uh, make sure that you're, uh, that you're safe and you have everything you need for the 72 hours, normally that's how long it would take to get, uh, to get help to come in and to, to help restore the problem. Um, but we don't often see that. Most outages are very, very short. 
So let's talk about the IT component here. There's OT, operational technology, IT, internet technology. Yeah. A lot of electrical systems are on OT, the idea being not really connected to the, the internet per se. It's a little bit removed, so some air gapping. That makes it safer. And I also understand that you know there might be some power station in Pennsylvania uh, that's so old it's not on anything. And, th and that separation of these connectivities help make the grid not so much a grid, but a collection of grids. Am I looking yeah. at that correctly? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely the, the bulk power system is a network of networks. Um, we, we have several grids. We, we have, you know, Western, Southern, uh, Central, Eastern, basically. Um, they're, they're also connected through interconnections. And, um, but, but yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And what one of the concerns in security is, is what we're really trying to prevent is what's called a cascading outage that goes from through an interconnection from one from one grid or one part of the country into another so there's an awful lot of effort that goes into making sure that kind of stuff never happens now this morning uh, about two hours ago i was on another call and it was from the north american electric reliability corporation which is uh which is a, an organization that creates standards and guidelines that help regulate the the bulk power system in North America, and it's it gets its marching orders from the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission in the U.S. and the Natural Resources Canada in Canada, and it's it's the organization that helps make sure that the grid runs properly. So one of the things that that we do is we run a big exercise every two years called GridX. So in November this year we're running GridX six, so it's the sixth one that we've run. And the last time we ran it, Grid X5 had 500 different utilities, uh, law enforcement agencies, government agencies, um, um, other other critical infrastructure sectors. And for two days, they we have uh, this large distributed play exercise that exercises both catastrophic cyber attacks and physical attacks against the grid. So, as far as I know, we're the only critical infrastructure sector that does that. So we, we, we practice for, for catastrophic attack every two years. And then from that, we, we build up lessons learned and then we implement the lessons learned. And by the time we've done all of that, two years has gone by and we're well into planning for the, for the next one. So that's just one example of the types of activities that go on to, to help protect the grid. Now, you said something interesting to me, that you may be the only infrastructure sector that does this exercise. I think, I think this emphasizes how important the grid is. And I'll tell you a quick story. My grandmother was born in 1888. She died in 1988. Her first car was a covered wagon. I'm not exaggerating. On the Columbia River in Portland, okay? She didn't have all this electricity and phones. And, and the things she saw as she aged were just amazing. My kids... Oh, hasn't everybody always had a cell phone since the beginning of time? No, my kids don't get it, right? Explain to us how important the grid is in, 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 in true contents because people just take electricity for granted. Electricity is life. Oh, yes. So the way we talk about it, electricity is essential to modern living. So without it, we wouldn't have easy access to our money. We wouldn't be able to communicate quickly across long distances. Um, there would be no internet. There'd be no water treatment. There'd be no fuel for transportation. There'd be no real health care. 
Even high-rise buildings would be empty without elevators and air handling to make them livable. The Southwest would be empty because it was electricity that allowed air conditioning, which opened up the South and the Southwest United States and made it far more, far, far more livable. Um, I used to work with the United Nations as their, um, in, in Rwanda years ago in the mid-90s. And I remember while we were there, we heard that the country to the south of us, Burundi, that there had been a terrorist attack on a, uh, on a power station. And so we looked to see what the power station served, and it, was the, it served the water treatment plant. And so we predicted and were unfortunately correct that within a few days, the cholera was going to break out down there. So cholera helps treat, treat water, or sorry, uh, electricity helps us to treat water, which, which is, is a huge component for public health. And it, it's everywhere. It's, it's, whether it's connected to the grid or not, um, um, it's everywhere. And when I say not, it's because increasingly uh, homes and businesses are starting to create, uh, to, to build in solar panels, etc. So they're, they're generating their own electricity for use, which is, in my opinion, a very good thing. I'm a security practitioner. This is above my head. I'm thinking to myself, you know what? The grid, wow, way too much information for me. I can't do anything about it. I don't think that's true. Speak to us on the average security practitioner level. Give us some ideas on what we should be aware of, how we can help protect the grid and contribute to this. Probably through observe and report would be one step, but, but break this down for us because I think if more people involved in this, we'd be even better off. The, the first thing is, is the danger, right? So the nature and the availability of electricity also means that public safety is a primary concern. Because it's everywhere, people have access to it. And if they have access to it, they can be hurt by it. Many people's understanding of electricity is based on what comes out of the wall plugs at home. We, but we make, we package, and we sell lightning. And we, but in order to make it safe, we have to step it down um, or reduce the voltage to something that can be used safely in the homes. So, but at the transmission and the distribution substation level, it behaves very, very differently. So I, re I recall when I lived in Edmonton and was working at a major utility there, and we had a, we got a call in the middle of the night and one copper thief had been badly burned by an arc flash created while he was trying to steal copper wire from a live circuit. Now, what happened was he uh, was trying to, to cut or pull copper wire off of the fence. And in order to brace himself, he reached back with his foot and he braced himself against a piece of equipment. Um, so what happened was there was an arc flash that actually went around him. It didn't go through him. It went around him, and it was a plasma cloud with about 9,000 amps of electricity in it. And remember, it takes about one-tenth of an amp to kill a person. It said 9,000 amps, and the temperature of that plasma cloud was considerably hotter than the surface of the sun. It set this guy on fire. He survived, but he had terrible, terrible injuries. So most of the effort, the physical security effort in the electricity sector, frankly, goes towards keeping people out of harm's way. So substations, we, uh, we protect them with, with fences and walls and barbed wire and intrusion detection systems, etc. Now, the, the bigger the substation, meaning the more, the more the power goes through it, the more power that goes into it, the, um, those ones are naturally more critical than the smaller substations. So the little neighborhood one, 
Um, and the smallest one would be the little distribution box at the end of the street that serves five houses. Five houses. That just needs to be locked uh, in a metal box with a with a lock and a, and a key. But then you go all the way up to the transmission stations, which might have 230,000 uh, volts of electricity coming into it. But because they serve a larger area, they're considered to be more critical. The thing about, about working in this sector is that we're protecting the public, but we're doing it as very, very cooperative. Um, as I used to explain to the people that I worked for, I said that my primary responsibility is protecting the bulk power system in North America. And you people are being kind enough to pay me for it. But what we do is we keep the grid up and running um, as, as our primary, primary concern. And in order to do that, one of the ways to do is to keep people away from, away from uh, uh, substation assets because, first of all, it's mainly copper thieves that, that go in there. They, get themselves, they can get themselves killed very, very easily. They can cut holes in fences that kids then find and, and can go in to explore or whatever things that kids do. Um, and it creates a really dangerous environment. So a lot of the stuff that we're trying to do is to keep people outside of these stations and away from these facilities for their own, for their own safety. You know, that is a very interesting way to describe it. I never thought about it on that level, but really it makes more sense. Sure, we have these James Bond plots and all that kind of stuff, right? But if what you're saying was not done efficiently at that level, it would just be a, a bigger disaster. You'd have all kinds of problems yeah. going on. Very, very interesting. You, you, can, like you can do things that these substations that are copper thieves can go in, and every, every piece of metal in a substation is grounded. And it, it, it's grounded by a heavy copper wire that takes it down into a this grounding grid that's buried six feet underneath the station. And, and so they go in and they remove these things. And then somebody comes in and he, let's say a utility worker doesn't realize that the grounding strap isn't there anymore. And he touches the equipment and you can be electrocuted. So it's dangerous, not just for the thief, it's dangerous for members of the public and it's dangerous for the utility crew. But I'll tell you, our aim is to make sure nobody gets hurt. We do not want thieves to be hurt. We do not want our workers. We don't want the public. Nobody gets hurt on our facilities. That's the way. That's the way we approach it. Sure. Ross, let's talk about let's talk about the cyber component. I, I hit on it briefly with you know uh, OT technology, IT technology. Uh, I understand taking things down physically. That certainly is one way to accomplish it. But are we as well protected on the cyber side of things? I, I would say yes. Uh, it is a changing landscape, though, which means that, which means that um, that it's a constant effort. Um, it takes a lot of people, and it, it also takes a lot of assistance from uh, from the government. For example, um, I used to be an intelligence officer years ago uh, in the Canadian military, and the intelligence community. I, I used to be part of that community, and. And then I sort of went off and I joined the security business and I came back and there they were again. But now the intelligence community is involved in, in helping protect critical infrastructure. And we are the most critical of critical infrastructures because without us, you don't have healthcare, you don't have banking, you don't have water treatment, you don't have uh, oil and gas. So, so we get a lot of assistance, um, threat assistance, and 
we work very closely in Canada and the United States with this community. Electricity mm-hmm. certainly is a clean, the cleanest of all our power, right? I don't yes. know much about it, but I also think to myself, it takes energy to make energy. Energy can't be destroyed, just altered, right? So yeah. is it our future to switch things to electrical? Uh, talk to me about the environmental impact of, of the byproducts of pure electrical usage. Because, you know, if I make a battery for my car, i got to throw that in the ground eventually someday, and that might be a problem. Tell me about this. Yeah. So I'm not a big expert in that, that end of it. Um, what I do see is a world where where things are, are re- recycled and reused as as often as possible, and I would expect that the battery industry would would, would follow that as well. But it, it used to be that electricity was generated from coal um, and from crude oil. Um, um, I've seen both of those types of power plants, and the impact on the environment was very poor. Um, in Canada, our probably our biggest resource for electricity is in is uh, water. Um, in fact, in many places in Canada, the word hydro, which means water, is synonymous for electricity. Um, so we have we, we we have huge dams in, in in Canada that produce an extraordinary amount of power, and it's clean power because it's it's renewable. It, it's renewed as the as the rains as the rains come and as the snowpack melts in the mountains. So the environmental cost for that is very very low. Um, there is natural gas and natural gas plants are really good. They generally use the, the same sort of engines that you find in in uh, jet engines, but change to run on natural gas and and to drive uh, generators. Um, those are really good and they're really useful because you can start one really, really quickly. Um, I know one plant that has 263 megawatts, which is a lot, and it's natural gas, and they can start that up and have it producing 263 megawatts in 10 minutes. So if the system operator, the person controlling the grid, um, says we need more power, then they, they can have access to it really quickly. But the long-term future, and the one that's what's really going to help us with climate change, and to re- reduce the uh, car- our carbon footprint, it's going to be what we call renewables. And so that's solar power, wind, and water. And the important thing is that you need grid-level storage. You need batteries, big, big batteries. And the reason for that is the way the grid is configured, energy is used or is generated as it's used. So if your wife turns on a hairdryer, 1,500 uh, watt hair dryer. Then somewhere in, on the grid, there's a generator producing that 1500 watts that's being con- consumed in the air, in the hair dryer at that point. And the job of these uh, system operators is to make sure that we can balance the demand for electricity with the supply for electricity. So if we can have if we can have what's called grid level storage, large batteries, then what we'll find is we'll need fewer transmission lines, and we can come back to that in a minute and why that's good. Um, but it, fewer transmission lines, but but you can use renewable energy. So, for example, the wind profile for running wind farms is really good at night. It's often better than the daytime. It's just that nobody needs the power at night. So if you used the wind turbines, uh, the wind farms, to, to recharge batteries during the nighttime, and then the power would be used in the daytime. Um, solar farms, same, same, same thing. Um, the other thing that is really exciting is, um, 
is electric vehicles. Because if you've got a lot of electric vehicles sitting in parking spots, plugged in charging, that becomes a grid level storage device in itself. And so there's a lot of research being done by system operators and engineers to figure out how they can access that energy when they need it. Um, as long and then recent so let, let's say your car is parked all day long system operator needs a certain amount of power he can take it up from your car and pay you for it and the agreement you would have with them you'd set it up so you'd say well i need the car by five o'clock in the afternoon and i need at least 50 percent of the battery full and so they would never take you below that that threshold but the idea of using all of these uh, or using electric vehicles as grid level storage is starting to catch on. And that's a really good thing. Now, the reason it's a good thing from a security perspective is because if we could distribute the energy generation um, and, and have it closer to where it's used, we need fewer and fewer of these big transmission lines. Now, the problem with transmission lines is that they're horrendously expensive. They take a long time to plan and to build. And increasingly, there's more and more resistance to by, by locals whenever they, they try and plan to put a, a transmission line through. So you, you get a lot of you get protests, you get a lot of uh, political pressure, a lot of problems. People think power lines are ugly. So they, they think that they're radiating you know, RF radiation. They don't want to live near them. They keep saying, well, you have to bury the power lines. And the, the companies say, yeah, sure. But just make sure that, you know, that, that we're paid, you know, that you pay us for burying the, the power lines. So transmission, um, to have to have less dependence on long-range transmission in the future would, would be a very good thing. The other thing is that if you think that grid is resilient now, if you think it's hard to knock, to, to have a widespread outage now, on the on by an adversary if you've got this distributed energy uh, generation it'll be really difficult if you have a if you've got um, um, solar panels on the roof of your house and you've got a big battery on the, on the wall of your garage um, you don't care so much if there's if there's an outage because there isn't going to be an outage at your house if you look at the new f-150 the ford lightning one of the things that they're advertising about it is that you can run your house off of that truck for three days with the with the energy in the in the battery, and if you if you scrimp a bit and conserve energy, you can run it for as long as a week. So, renewable energy and batteries um, is the way forward because it's going to further distribute energy resources, which will make us far more resilient. It, it will become impossible to attack and and and, and uh, produce a large a large scale outage. Mr. Ross Johnson, you are the first person in twenty years that has made me feel better about the grid. Congratulations, my friend! I wish I had a prize for you for that. Fantastic information. I'm ser I'm totally serious. I never thought about these concepts. I mean, the energy storage and vehicles and stuff. This is brilliant stuff. And really, you're right. It will make it virtually impossible to take down, what are you going to take down 100 million car batteries at once? I mean, yeah. this is really cool stuff, my friend. I want to thank you it so is. much. It's, really exciting. Yeah, it's exciting. Yeah. Very exciting. Thank you so much for coming on Security Management Highlights, my friend, and good luck to you. Okay, thank you very much.